2: Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that doesn't apologize for the language it uses, but that's because I haven't done enough Duolingo yet to feel confident doing it in French as well. I'm Tina Duyeb, and this week, as chairman of the Conservative Party and man who looks like he's the last sole subscriber to Reader's Wives magazine, Nadim Zawahi, still insists he wasn't a beneficiary from the millions in UGOV investments sent offshore. I think in a way He's telling the truth, uh, as by avoiding paying it in tax, absolutely none of it has gone to heat his horses. We are only halfway through the first month of 2023, and already, I mean, fair play to the Conservative government, as they have successfully boosted the entire country's efficiency and helped us all save energy by removing the need for us to wish anyone a happy new year within about two minutes of it starting. I mean, it's pretty much just a new year, isn't it? If anything, same as before, if not more shitty. So think of all the energy we'll save not having to pronounce those two syllables, or even pretend to raise a smile, so we can instead save that breath that could well give us the extra 30 seconds of life that we need to survive the 9 hour wait for an ambulance. Nothing says starting 2023 with a blank page quite like not promising to well put anything on the page and letting the entire UK know that they'll just be floundering for the next 365 days as the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak fulfills his role as the reverse Neo from the Matrix, you know, seeing everything in numbers but doing absolutely shit all with any of them. Sunak promised that his government over the next year would halve inflation. You know, the inflation they supposedly weren't responsible for when it was going up, but now it's going down, they seem to have entire power over it, which I suppose might be plausible when you remember the government are only skilled in bringing things down. Then, the Prime Minister promised better paying jobs and growing the economy, but as neither he nor his ministers have even bothered negotiating with any of the striking workers, he clearly just meant all the extra jobs MPs are scooping up. There was also a promise to make NHS waiting lists fall, which I guess they already are as people are collapsing long before they ever get seen by a doctor. We will, said Sunak in his tone that replicates in real life what it's like talking to a refrigerator on Zoom with a dodgy internet connection, we will restore trust in politics through action or not at all. Well, it seems the latter has now become Number 10's entire political strategy. It does make sense in a way. If the health minister, whoever he is, uh, wait, hang on, uh, oh yeah, Stephen Barclay, the human version of a depression left in a bed after someone died in it. Oh no, sorry, I've forgotten him again already. If he doesn't meet with any of the unions representing NHS staff, then he doesn't hear any of their concerns and therefore they just don't exist. Stephen Bartley refuses to accept the ONS's findings that last year the UK had the highest death toll outside of a pandemic, and so I guess that means, you know, it's just not true, right? It just can't have happened if he doesn't accept it. In the same way, if you close your eyes, put your fingers in your ears and shout la 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 very loudly, then you haven't pissed yourself at the supermarket again, as it hasn't happened if you can't hear the people pointing and calling security. The Home Secretary Suella Bravman, a woman who the Marquis de Sade would have said was a bit OTT, is ditching the key Windrush pledges as that way she doesn't have to put the effort in to actually do them. She also told a Holocaust survivor at a constituency meeting that she wouldn't apologise for the language she used to dehumanise refugees because, as you understand, that might mean she'd have to consider consequences of her actions, but if she doesn't, then there probably aren't any. I suppose asking Suella Bravman to apologise for dehumanising refugees is a bit like asking Dracula to apologise for sucking people's blood. It's just what he needs to do to be who he is. Instead, though, Swella Bravman got the Home Office to insist that campaign group Freedom from Torture remove the video of her defending herself being a Nazi piece of shit, Um, as that way, I guess it just won't have happened. Doing that does breach governmental office code, but I suppose who cares when Bravman will probably put her head in a bin when someone tries to tell her so she can be absolved from doing anything about it. If new anti-protest laws mean police stop any and everyone from saying how unhappy they are, then surely everyone must be happy as you can't hear otherwise. New government plans would allow officers to shut down protests before they cause any disruption, which isn't an affront to democracy because I'm sure a protest is just as effective if absolutely no one can hear it or knows it's going on and everyone involved is arrested by police. Still, I suppose it will keep the police occupied so they'll be too busy shutting down protests to sexually assault anyone and thereby actually minimise real disruption. The government also wants to roll out anti-strike legislation which will helpfully assist understaffing in institutions by firing anyone who isn't happy with how they're being treated and therefore the institutions will entirely collapse and won't have to be fixed anymore at all. There's no better way to cut NHS waiting times quite like letting the entire health service collapse, is there? You can't wait 18 months for an appointment if it doesn't actually exist anymore and nothing will fix your ailments quite like you stopping being selfish and just dying. It's the only way when there's clearly no money to meet the pay rise demands of nurses or ambulance drivers who'd like to eat every now and then and have at least five minutes off work a week because, you see, it's all being spent on bonus payments for the army covering the posts of people striking. I'm sure there's another solution here, but I just, I just can't see it. It's really difficult. There would of course be other cash available, but I'm afraid Nadim Zawahi made sure it would get a better holiday than you'll ever be able to afford. Zahawi avoided millions in tax, which he denied doing, and said he'd sue anyone who suggested it, which is the normal behaviour for when you're not guilty of doing something, isn't it? I mean, I'm not sure about you, but I often just ride around on a well-heated horse yelling, I've not stolen any cash and if you say I did, I'll ruin you, and absolutely everyone believes me as a result. Despite that, Zahawi is paying it back and luckily HMRC are being real nice and saying that he can just give back the amount that he wants to rather than having to pay the full amount or going to jail like all those real crooks who pay tax a couple of weeks late or forget to submit a receipt for a sandwich. It makes it even clearer now why former Prime Minister and cake left out in the rain Boris Johnson made to Harvey Chancellor for all of five minutes, because who knows how to spot tax avoidance better than someone who's an absolute expert at doing it? It's like how detached bollock Damien Green is now in charge of overseeing the online safety bill after previously losing his front bench position for using his parliamentary computer to look at porn. Who better to know what hazards children may face online than someone who actively searches them out for a cheeky desk wank? Isn't it great when a hobby you feel passionate about becomes your real job? It would be wrong to suggest that the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has nothing he cares about though, despite it seeming like he'd be beaten in a personality test by the horror android Megan. For a start, there was his short-lived insistence that everyone should have to study maths up to the age of 18, but I think the wind behind that diminished when Rishi Sunak realised that would just mean even more young people who could do the sums and realise the government actually has no clue how the economy works. They'd also quickly be able to do the maths to show there aren't enough maths teachers to carry out such lessons, and schools would need a tonne of funding to fix that. I suppose, though, it could also mean that exam questions are a tad more interesting with a new sense of realism about them. For example, question one. If the government says the NHS has adequate funding, but the excess death toll is through the roof, how much blood do the government have on their hands? Easy. Sunak is also very keen on scrapping 4,000 pieces of legislation that the government says are EU regulations, but they were also UK legislation first, so it's a bit like excluding a member of your family because they kept their married name after a divorce. It will cost tens of millions of pounds in staffing costs just to review and tear these bills up, and considering that many of them are protections such as minimum holiday leave for workers or limiting sewage poured into rivers, it does suggest the Conservatives can still find loads of cash spare when it's for making things even worse. Of course, tearing up these laws doesn't mean they won't replace them with British versions that are better, but I mean, have you met these guys before? That'd be like hearing Prince Harry's releasing an electro album he made on a Casio keyboard and assuming the British press haven't already frothed at the mouth and exploded. Still, if no one has any working rights, then they won't be able to not strike about them. And if wildlife is all covered in shit, then there's no point protecting it, is there? Hooray for or not politics. Cilak's other keen interest right now is letting Scotland know it isn't its own country, as it has to be as affected by his shitty decisions as much as everywhere else. The Prime Minister is seeking to block legislation by Scottish Parliament that would make it easier for people above the border to legally change their gender. This would be the first time a British Prime Minister used Westminster power to block a Scottish law, but Sunak said this bill cuts across UK legislation on equalities, which apparently is a Westminster policy issue. You know, in the same way Peaceful Calm Times is a policy issue for cocaine Bear because it's the exact opposite of what it wants. It's interesting how Sunak wants to ensure Scotland knows it's part of the UK, while simultaneously ignoring that Northern Ireland still has no government at all. Maybe Stormont should quickly form an executive just to pass something that aggravates the culture war, like, I don't know, suddenly declaring Guinness has to be vegan, and I reckon Number 10 would remember it exists in a heartbeat. It would require an extra seven or eight podcasts just to simply list everything that feels like it's on the verge of collapse in the UK right now. But needless to say, if you want to ensure you're OK through whatever remainder of time we have to suffer this government, your best to not ever get ill, be ill already, need any sort of help, need any sort of food, warmth or light, money, water, shelter, identity, have no kids, have no elderly relatives, have no friends, not want to go anywhere and manage not to be young, old or anywhere in between. Yes, the British government in 2023 are the government for you if you're an ethereal wisp or Superman. Oh no wait, sorry, Superman believed in truth and justice, didn't he? Sorry, my bad, just the wisp then. All the signs of us plummeting even further into an authoritarian state are there, but with the sad realisation that we won't even get the cool militaristic dance routines as the weather is just too shit. As always, we are very lucky though in the UK that we have an effective opposition who can see all the damage the government is doing and offer an alternative bunch of people to do the same damage so at least we can see some different faces saying stupid, awful, ignorant shit on television instead. Labour leader and the personification of that mild disappointment you feel when you know you've stepped in dog shit, Keir Starmer, has been doing the rounds insisting Britain needs a completely new way of governing, before then also saying there are no funds to pay nurses better and he'll wait to see what the government says first on Scotland's gender bill. Wow, can you feel that different way of doing things? It's like having a satsuma in one hand and a tangerine in the other. Starmer said in a BBC interview that for the NHS to survive, it must reform and be effective in using the private sector, which is a bit like trying to improve a bicycle speed by anchoring it to a brick wall. It's too full of bureaucratic nonsense, said the Labour leader, possibly confusing the NHS with his own party, and then insisting that if people have issues like internal bleeding and you just need a test, there should be a way that you don't have to see a GP. It's comments like that that make me amazed we don't hear more news stories about MPs being found dead at home after accidentally severing off their own leg and self-diagnosing that it's probably fine to leave it be. The Tories have deliberately underfunded the NHS for over a decade, but according to Labour, the real reason it's in trouble is because people whose organs are bleeding are troubling GPs when they could just Google their symptoms and read the results before they black out. I can't imagine Keir Starmer has ever successfully self-diagnosed any medical issue he's ever had. I bet he just ums and ahs about what it could be without ever deciding before copying a condition someone else has as he thinks that might mean it's popular. The majority of the public, according to all the polls, think NHS staff should be paid more and the health service properly funded. And similarly, public opinion is now regretful of Brexit, yet Labour are saying once in power, they would enact their take-back-control bill, which sounds like a very bleak CBBS character, devolving power so no one could blame their government for things still being shit. Labour seem to be getting all their tips from the current government and assuming that to really stay in power, absolutely everyone has to think you're the absolute fucking worst. In other news, like a cauliflower wrapped in pigskin, MP Andrew Bridgen has been suspended from the Conservative Party. No, not for lying in court under oath, they didn't really care about that. Not for breaching ministerial codes, so he actually just got 5 days suspension for that. This time, it's because he compared on Twitter the Covid vaccine to the Holocaust, you know, as you do. I mean, think of all the similarities, right? One was the mass murder of 6 million Jewish people, and the other saved people from getting a horrific uh, virus, and uh, they both have a C in their names, and they're misunderstood by conspiracy idiots. So. Basically, twinsies. Bridgen said a consultant cardiologist had said the vaccine was the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust, which, besides being weird and an awful thing to say, also conveniently ignores a lot of global humanitarian crises. All that time, cricketer Ian Botham accidentally tweeted naked pictures of himself. Bridgend’s tweet caused outrage across the benches where even former health secretary and walking midlife crisis Matt Hancock condemned him for his anti-scientific comments. Yes, don't let anything take credit away from you for unnecessary Covid deaths Matt. Good work. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson is facing accusations of covering up party gate evidence as witnesses now say that crucial documents about the illegality of the events were put through the shredder. But I suppose very quick and cheap way to do homemade paper confetti for any party. An investigation by ITV also reveals that staff members were shagging at the party the night before the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral, but that is tricky as I guess it means it was definitely a business event. Despite raking in millions of private speaking earnings and dodgy donations, Boris Johnson is still using the government credit card for massive expensive lunches around the world and is looking to be parachuted into a safe seat for the next election, which I think is a great idea as that way the Tories will potentially lose one of the few places they might have kept if they just had an MP no one knew much about rather than the one we all thought was a massive useless thieving prick. And finally, plans to clean up Britain's waterways of sewage and agricultural materials have been pushed back 36 years by the environmental agency, presumably with the hope that by the time it rolls around they won't actually have to deal with it as they'll be too old for that shit. In a way, it does mean the country's rivers will accurately affect the rest of it as anyone taking a dip will be up against an absolute torrent of crap and waste. Hey! Yes, the podcast is back. Uh, I tried. Uh, I've had four weeks away from the news and I'm now uh, ready to read it once again while also eye-rolling hard, which does actually make the reading of it very difficult. Also, though, I was thinking, yeah, after four weeks off, I'll be full of fresh new ideas of things to say about current issues. And then uh, I realised, oh, no, still the same old problems I complained about 600 times already. Oh, it's all exhausting, though, isn't it? All of them. All of them, everything. All of it. Uh, I keep saying out aloud that there has to be a breaking point at some point. Surely, right? There just has to be. Things have to get better at some point. And then I realise I'm not really doing any action myself or doing anything about it, as it's too cold. And I have to spend at least an hour saying, oh, it's horrible out there, while drinking coffee every morning. Before I can even contemplate doing anything remotely productive. Uh, um, I did have a nice break though, thanks for asking, um, and actually spent one whole week of the holidays not doing any work at all, which was a real win. And now back into the fray of all this once more with a renewed vigour for wanting another whole week off, but you know, where my agent, sorry, daughter is at school. So I actually get to rest. That's the dream. Isn't it? proper a real holiday where's the party that's promising a bonus christmas but you know after christmas where the kids are in school i fully appreciate this isn't good for teachers if you're a teacher listening obviously you probably think it's a terrible idea but also it should definitely happen um thank you all for still sticking with this uh for for listening to us despite a little time away mega thank you to emma and bradley for joining or rejoining the patreon that is very much appreciated um i do normally message people with a sort of personal thanks for doing that on patreon but it currently won't let me log in so just know the thought was there and it is the thought that counts right that's what i intend to tell the energy company anyway it's the thought of paying this extortionate bill that counts right I've got my tax bill due end of this month, as probably many of you have, and I am really contemplating writing to them. Well Nadim Sahari just paid what he wanted, so I think you can have 50p. Thanks, bye! Um, if you can afford to support this podcast, and honestly, I had some thoughts about cutting down how long these episodes are, or the amount of time I spend on them, or just, I don't know, like, really, should I still be doing this show? Um, and then I got some emails about more Patreon donations, and I immediately went, yeah, it's worth me doing it. I am that shallow, that is true. Um, so if you want to be part of the crew that keeps keeps me doing this, uh, you can join the patreon.com forward slash Bro for zero rewards, except extra afterlife of your choice points. Or you can do one-off thingies at ko-fi.com forward slash Purple bro too and I was wondering about scrapping should I scrap one of those things should I just have the Patreon or just the Kofi? fi um, does anyone care am I just giving myself too many things to do one a focus on important stuff, why isn't everything easier? I blame the government and of course, if you haven't got cash, then firstly kudos for we are one and the same, but also stick a nice review on Apple podcasts, please thank you very much, thank you or on Spotify or any of them other places where podcasts live in the wild um but back to the thing that I complain about all the time um I say this I say this every few weeks so it's probably incredibly boring for you listeners, but basically i don't have uh, much time for this show uh, again stuff coming up um, it's going to mean I'm quite busy um, so next few weeks might be up and down with some interview free ones um, so as always if you've got tips on the subjects I should be chatting to people about um, which will make me researching who to bother that would make my life easier so please do let me know it seems to be the same current cycle of horrors Uh, on the news right now, doesn't it? Climate change, NHS, people on strikes, the government doing absolutely fuck all about anything. Um, So I guess I'm looking for specific political areas to talk to people about or things that aren't being reported on and are overlooked or maybe, if it's possible, anything remotely positive as a goddamn break from this goddamn shit. Yeah, so get in touch. I feel like I should have more interesting things to tell you after a few weeks away from this, but uh, no, that's my life. Uh, Triangle of Sadness is brilliant. I made a really good sandwich, and I also got older last week, but, you know, officially. um, And I think that's it. I think that is all my news Uh, and right now you're sort of all updated on me this week i have got the brilliant julia grace patterson from every doctor talking all about the nhs crisis and it is a good one and but also a bleak one it's nice to be back isn't it how on earth did you all cope for those four weeks without hearing me get people to talk about all the things you should be despairing about i just just know how you did it
0: it's that time of the year
2: If I was to describe England's relationship with the NHS, the only term I could really think of is negging. Sure, we all love it. I mean, look at the times it's been celebrated with people jumping on beds about it at the Olympics or everyone trying to out-clap each other for healthcare workers during the pandemic and even old men walking laps until they could get given a free holiday and die and their family scam people out of money for it. But at the same time, we all insist on having politicians who treat it like they're its arch-nemesis and spend their nights cackling on top of a building, swearing that they'll destroy it next time. We tell everyone how proud of it we are. Is the world envious of our healthcare service and how it's always there when we need it, and yet when it needs us, we generally pretend not to be in and really hope it leaves us alone? Currently, the NHS is in the sort of condition that were it a patient, it'd be rushed into itself to be treated immediately, but unfortunately, due to the eighteen-hour waits, would keel over in a waiting room while an MP insists it should have just self-diagnosed. Buildings are crumbling, staff are leaving and ambulances have no choice but to deliver a slower than yodel service where in fact it would be more efficient if they were allowed to kick patients into a tree or recycling bin rather than actually leave them in a safe place. Doctors and Nurses is no longer a sexy game but one where you're just very tired and feel sad. Okay, I mean, fair, some people may still find that sexy. It is this way due to years and years of underfunding and neglect from the Conservatives, who always insist the NHS is in safe hands, which would be great if true, and they didn't keep trying to sell it off to go into other people's hands like it was an orphan child in a Dickens story about to have the worst time of its life. The public are very aware of this, according to all the polls, but political parties, well, either willfully ignorant or genuinely ignorant. Rishi Sunak is currently saying the NHS has the funding it needs, and I'm sure it does if you don't think it needs to do anything other than exist. It's like how when you get a new phone and it tells you it has 20 plus hours of battery life and in the small print points out how using it in any way at all will reduce that by at least half. Meanwhile, Keir Starmer is insisting it's all due to bureaucratic nonsense, you know, much like party politics. Both parties keep insisting the NHS is actually crumbly because of doctors or nurses being selfish and wanting to be paid to work or lack of doctors and nurses, which is selfish of them not to be there or patients being selfish and getting ill when they could just not if they tried or mismanagement by not somehow doing all the things you need to do but on half the funding or it's people from abroad being selfish by not wanting to die while on holiday or it's because there isn't enough money but that's only the fault of the foreigners and people being ill and selfish doctors and and not because Nadim Sahawi hid it all offshore. So, as many NHS staff are having to take strike action, waiting times keep growing, excess deaths are going up in a way that Matt Hancock is probably horny about, and the general advice is just to try not to get sick, yeah? What is the future for the health service when the two main parties seem like they'd pop it on Ziffit if they thought they could get 50p and not have to pay for postage? This week, I spoke to Dr Julia Grace Patterson, the chief exec and founder of Every Doctor, a doctor-led campaign to support all NHS staff and revive the service. Julia is a tireless campaigner, and just days before we spoke, she'd been in Parliament holding an emergency meeting for MPs to hear from NHS staff directly about what it's like on the front line right now. I asked Julia just how bad things are, what the solution actually is when even the current political opposition is suggesting privatisation just with their donors instead, and if ambulances should just pop patients on the porch, take a photo to show they left them there, and then ask for a review. Okay, I mean, not the last one, obviously. I'm really pleased Julia had time to talk because I think she gives a brilliantly clear, if depressing, rundown of the current worrying mess that the NHS is in. Here's Julia. Hi, Julia. I really appreciate you having the time to chat to me this week. I know you've got an awful lot on at the moment. Um, I want to start right at the top because, uh, you know, I, I read, uh, obviously reading a lot about the NHS. Um, and as, as a diabetic, I do pop into the outpatients a bit. But I think for everyone who's not actively had to you know luckily not had to go to A&E or luckily not had to get an ambulance Um, it's quite hard to know just how bad a state the NHS is in right now Um, and I wondered if you could just give us an overview of of what where are we at what is it like and is it also just these emergency services or is it the entire National Health Service that's in trouble? So
1: there's been um, problems in the NHS for a few years now since 2010, the government have squeezed the funding for the NHS. And between 2010 and 2020, the real terms increase in funding was the lowest it has been, you know, as a decade since the NHS was first started in 1948. Um, The preceding decades had seen increases in funding between about four and six percent. But between 2010 and 2020, that figure dipped to 1.6 percent. And what that means is that for a few years everything was getting squeezed we were having cuts about 25000 beds were cut within the nhs lots of staff roles were cut there was a massive um, pay freeze for nhs staff and so as the cuts happened and the service came under more pressure the staff were also becoming under pressure because they're the ones running the service and their pay was getting squeezed at the same time and so We did start to see people leaving the service. Um, And what has then happened um, is the pandemic occurred, obviously. uh, We went into the pandemic not in a good state. There was already over 4 million people waiting for NHS treatment at the beginning of the pandemic. And then there were lots of delays and cancellations because services were struggling to cope with the demand caused by COVID. And since the pandemic, healthcare leaders have been warning the government that unless something was urgently done, we were going to face a situation where the whole system would collapse. And the reason for that is because every single month, the stats in the NHS have been getting worse. The waiting lists have been going up and up and up. They're now at 7.2 million patients waiting for treatment in England alone. And um, we've got a situation where there's a staffing crisis because lots of staff are leaving the service because it's incredibly stressful and they're not getting paid properly. Um, and we've, got a situation now where the entire system is in a state of collapse which is a terrifying thing to say but every part of the service is related to every other part and so if there's pressure in one part of the system um you you know it has a knock-on effect in other parts of the system um so if i just explain that quickly because it's not really covered very much in the media at the moment. So. What happens in the NHS is that people are registered with the GP and your GP looks after chronic care or kind of one-off illnesses, etc., etc. Um, GPs have been under enormous strain since the pandemic because their patient population is struggling to access the specialist treatment they need and the operations they need. There's lots of patients who are deteriorating in their health because they're waiting for so long. And we hear about lots of examples of this. For example, you know, If you're waiting for a knee operation and your mobility is affected and you're waiting for years and years to get that knee operation, it might mean you need more painkillers, it might mean that you need more physiotherapy, your quality of life might be impacted because you might be not be able to get out and about, your mental health might be affected because it's, it's a big deal living with pain. So GP has been under enormous strain. The GPs have actually been attacked in the media and blamed for a lot of these problems, which has been really terrible for the workforce. Um, as well as that, the waiting lists have obviously been going up and up and up. So, hospital doctors running clinics and stuff have been under enormous strain to try and see patients as quickly as they can. But to be honest, not getting on top of the problems because we have a staffing crisis. We've now got a problem where, when we come into the winter period, things get busier anyway because people have more respiratory illnesses. And this winter, we do have more COVID, more flu, all of the things which were predicted, to be honest. Um, it was always going to get to this state. Um, there's been a lot of messaging from coming from the government saying that the problems in the NHS are just because of COVID and flu at the moment. That's not the case. We came into the winter in an absolutely terrible state of affairs and everyone could have predicted that this was going to happen. But what is happening now is that there's a problem of huge ambulance delays. So when people are calling an ambulance in an emergency, that ambulance sometimes is very delayed, sometimes it's not coming at all. Uh, we're hearing about situations where people, for example, might, fall over and break their hip and they call an ambulance and the ambulance never arrives. Um, You know, really awful stuff like that. There's a situation where when the ambulances arrive at the A&E departments, the A&E departments are full. And so the ambulance staff aren't able to hand over patients safely. So ambulances are waiting in hospital car parks, you know, for many hours waiting to hand over patients safely. The A&E departments are backed up because the wards are really, really full. And the reason the wards are really, really full is because patients are struggling, some patients are struggling to get discharged out of hospital even when they're ready because we have a social care crisis. The governments have been saying for years they're going to tackle this social care crisis and they haven't. Um, We don't have enough capacity and we don't have enough staff in social care and they're not paid enough. And so you've got this system. If you think about a patient flowing through um, the healthcare system, the GPs are under loads of pressure. If things get worse and you need an ambulance, your ambulance is delayed, it might not come. Then the ambulances that do arrive at the hospital aren't able to offload patients. Then the patients in the AE department can't get onto the ward and the patients on the wards can't get out the other end. So it's backed up at all levels of the system. It's it's really terrifying. And now we're in a system where um, a situation where up to 500 patients are dying per week needlessly, um, you know, who wouldn't otherwise have died if they had received appropriate care. So we're calling it a humanitarian crisis. I mean, if you look up the definition of a humanitarian crisis, this this is what we're living through and the government aren't taking responsibility, which is really horrifying.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really terrifying. And I think that, you know, just you mentioned at the end, at the end there, seeing, seeing the excess deaths figures is yeah. absolutely scary. And seeing that the main advice at the moment is just don't get ill. Yeah. Try not to get ill if you can try, which is just the most stupid advice <laughs> that you could possibly give out there. Um and, and and obviously, you know, as you say, the government, well, they blamed COVID quite a lot, but this was an issue before COVID. They're now blaming strikes, but it's very <laughs> obvious the strikes are happening because, you know, nurses and doctors and ambulance workers, everyone, they care about patients and are worried this is happening. Um, I wonder, you know, I wonder if you could tell us you, you had an emergency briefing on Wednesday with MPs. Yeah. Were there politicians that are open to listening to NHS staff? Because, it, I mean, I find it incredulous that we are... Just hearing in the news, I mean, particularly from the government, that, oh, the NHS is getting enough uh, I- enough funding and, and it's fine, but also it's on the it's somehow also on the brink at the same time, which is very confusing.
1: It is confusing. And I'm not surprised why people are feeling confused about it, quite honestly. Um, we're lucky enough to be linked up with about 400,000 people online. And a lot of those people feel really strongly about the NHS and have been contacting their MPs and asking them to come along to these emergency meetings we've been running. And we bring frontline doctors in contact with politicians to explain exactly what's going on on the frontline, because sometimes that can be really powerful. Um we have been doing this for a long time now. We've done about 26 MP briefings since the pandemic. And so we've got to know a lot of the MPs. We know who's going to respond how, who's really engaged with their constituents. Um, and there are a group of politicians, um, not all of one party. Um, I would say not very many of the Conservative politicians will be engaging with us, but um, Green Party, Lib Dems, Labour, SNP, um, some of the politicians from the smaller parties as well, are incredibly engaged and worried about the NHS. But the problem we're finding is that the machine of messaging that comes out from Labour and from the Conservative Party at the moment is still sending out stock responses to a lot of constituents that are either thinking about this in a long-term way, so sort of, um, you know, we're approaching them, explaining that this is an immediate situation requiring an immediate response, and they're replying to their constituents with this sort of, don't worry, you've got a plan um, and the plan is something that's not going to get sourced out in the short term. Um, all people who, quite honestly, are denying that there's a problem and, like you say, saying that enough funding is going into the NHS. The, the problem we have, really, it's, it's the urgency that this is being approached um, with. This situation should be being approached as an absolute emergency for the country and we should be throwing everything we can at it, right? We shouldn't be thinking about this in terms of in three years' time, we'll have built a new hospital or whatever. Like that, this isn't you know, it's actually really crazy that with you know that the government aren't well um, approaching this in the way that they did the first wave of the pandemic. Quite honestly, um, it's pretty horrible actually. And so, what we're trying to do now, because this government does make a lot of U turns, um, is is put a lot of public pressure on them to to change the way they're approaching this. Um, and i hope they will i think they probably will because i don't think
2: they're going to have much of a choice i, I mean and, and i would ask you quite a, a big question i suppose and you know and i and i don't know if there is a, a sort of right answer for this but uh uh we'll come to long maybe longer term solutions but what what is the immediate solution right now because you know one of the other issues we're hearing and and i should say i i personally don't believe a word of this but the government's saying it's unaffordable to raise nurses pay at the same time they can pay the army uh double their rate to go and step in for <laughs> ambulance workers which without any worry you know there's always goes about we don't we don't have the money to do this yeah what is the what is the immediate solution because this is so scary but i i don't know how they fix this i suppose um unless they go back on a lot of things that they that they've put in place and, and a part of what their ideology is a, as a party is such as allowing doctors and nurses to come from abroad
1: etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah so we well, you've touched on something really important there about the frontline workers pay i mean not paying workers enough is a political choice and it's a choice they've made for a long time now we're obviously seeing impacts on that because now we've got a workforce crisis you know you can only push people so far and then they they'll vote with their feet when they, and they'll leave um, And they've you know you can see the money they're spending on other projects so they clearly have the money um i think it's a nonsense saying that there's no money for this so yeah absolutely but We have also put together a list of five uh, policy points that could be implemented by the government in the short term, which would make a difference. It wouldn't fix everything because, unfortunately, they've rendered the service so dysfunctional now that it is going to take the long term to fix the whole problem, if you see what I mean. But what they could be doing right now is strengthening the NHS workforce, because quite honestly, we need as many staff getting things moving as we possibly can and so we need to encourage nhs staff to work extra shifts and that sort of thing so the the five things that we think would make a difference are um, there's a lot of admin backlogs at the home office because we have been recruiting a lot of people from other countries to come to the nhs and offer their expertise and skills and then people are being offered nhs jobs and arriving in the country to start those jobs And then the paperwork they need isn't being processed quickly enough. And so we're hearing, for example, from doctors who are waiting six months to get their paperwork sorted. Obviously, that's, you know, I mean, it's horrible for individuals because some of them are being put into financial, really precarious situations. But also for the service, it's appalling because, you know, if we employ someone to come and look after patients and that those patients aren't having a doctor. You know, so that's the first thing. Um, Secondly, quite a simple thing, again, comes down to money. Obviously, everyone's going through an energy crisis at the moment and a cost of living crisis. The government haven't put a long term plan in place to absorb the energy costs which are being sustained by. NHS workplaces they're doing it now but it's only lasting for another couple of months and that's going to really impact on NHS budgets in terms of being able to employ local temporary staff and stuff so we want them to commit to absorbing those costs. Um, The third thing is mental health support for staff all the way through the pandemic and since staff have just been enduring so much stress and it is pushing people out of the workforce. Um, I talk to a lot of doctors every day and I've heard from people who've given up medicine to become a dog walker or they're running a flower farm or, you know, doing something different because they, you know, they just can't tolerate any more stress. And so if the government could be showing the current workforce, they appreciate them and support them and are willing to, you know, take practical steps to do so, that would make a massive difference. And the other two come down to um, kind of money and tax and pensions and stuff. Um there's a situation which isn't being widely reported on at the moment where senior doctors have got um, are being pushed out of working enough hours because of pension rules. And what happens is um, the NHS staff have a pension pot and the pension pot grows year on year and they pay tax on um, the growth of the pension pot, essentially. So they don't have any control over the pension pot growing and it's not money they're accessing at the moment. Um, The only thing they can do is cut their hours down so that they're earning less and um, less money goes into the pension pot. So we've got this mad situation where doctors are receiving enormous tax bills if they work extra hours. Um, That's
2: absolutely bunkers. What a strange thing to
1: do. Yeah, it's a horrible situation. And so we know of doctors, for example, who stepped up during the pandemic, worked loads and loads of extra hours to support their patients and then got tax bills through the post and the tax that they were charged in some of these cases actually was more money than the money they'd earned for doing the extra hours. So they were paying to go to work. So it's this crazy situation. And we know lots of doctors who are having to cut down their hours. So at a time when we need them to be working as many hours as they could, they're cutting their hours instead. Um and they don't see any other way around it, which is mad. And Jeremy Hunt knows about this. He's been well briefed, blah, blah. He's been talking about himself for months, but he hasn't taken the d- decision to you know, sort that out. So that's fourth thing. And the fifth thing is um, hourly rates of pay for temporary workers. Now, there's been a massive, it's called a, a locum tax bill. So locums are temporary staff in the NHS. In recent years because we've had a staffing crisis, and its just workplaces have been forced to employ lots of temporary staff and there are situations when those rates have sometimes been really really high, particularly if people have been employed through an agency. so you can see why they've been trying to take steps to limit that bill. But what's happening now is that some of the NHS workplaces are asking their regular staff to come and do extra shifts for really low hourly rates. And people are weighing up, you know, I'm absolutely exhausted. I haven't seen my kids. And, you know, do I want to come to work for yet another weekend shift? There's no end in sight. People are saying no, because they're not getting paid enough. And quite frankly, we need to just be throwing everything we've got at this and really appreciating the staff who are going in and doing these extra hours so we think they need to drop these they're called locum caps we think we need to drop the locum caps at least temporarily just to get us through this crisis
2: yeah yeah i mean i i can't the last two you just talked about completely throw me that's absolutely bonkers that those are issues i mean is there and, and forgive me if this is on a slight tangent as well is outside of the immediate nhs you know you mentioned the energy crisis in terms of what hospitals are having to pay but there's not enough help for people and and surely a lack of heating is causing more people to have to go to hospital and we've also not really had a push on covid vaccines yet again but that seems to have had an increase are there are you know are there societal things if the government were helping it would reduce the amount of people that would need to go to a and e in the first place
1: absolutely like i haven't actually seen stats on this yet of how much that is impacting people becoming unwell but Kind of anecdotally, we hear about a lot of people through our network who, for example, go on a home visit to a patient who's become unwell, has a chest infection or unwell in a different way. And, you know, staff are walking into absolutely freezing cold houses and uh, people who can't afford to turn their heaters on. And, you know, if you've got health problems and you're not even able to afford to eat or, you know, turn your heating on, that is going to have an impact. And I think horribly we're going to see... Um, Excess deaths, excess, um, you know, health problems from our population in a way we haven't seen for decades because it hasn't been happening in Britain. You know, we've we've been very fortunate, haven't we, in recent years that most people have been able to live in a warm home. Um, and that's, that's now in, you know, we're regressing now. We're going to see, I think the concerns from the healthcare community is we're going to start seeing illnesses that we haven't seen for a long time because people are living in damp, mouldy ho- homes, you know, it's... It's horrible. It's
2: inhumane. Yeah, it's very scary. It's, and, and and food, uh, food poverty. There's so many <laughs> issues that are going to uh, affect people's health. Uh, um, health, sorry. And I, I, I sort of to go back to the previous question. I was asking about the short term plan. Lo- longer term. Uh, and again, cards on table. I'm sort of anti the privatisation of the NHS. I very much love that it's a national health service and is free at the point of use. But, it, you know, are we in now? Can it be funded correctly? Are we now, is it now in such a state that long term it will have to have some privatisation applied? I know that's what Labour has been talking about to an extent and uh, perhaps I don't know if they mean more like the Scandinavian model or, you know, or or can all this be avoided? What, What do we need in the long term to kind of protect the NHS? So, this is oh, where well, it's a very big question. Sorry.
1: <laughs> no, like, it's, it's the core, it's the root of the problem, quite frankly. Um, it's difficult to talk about this at the moment because there's so much important stuff that's like in the here and now that everyone's having to deal with. But a, a large part of the reason we're in the situation we are is because of privatization. What has happened over the last four decades, so <laughs> this isn't a new thing, is that successive governments have put reforms. In place into the NHS. It's allowed them to do things like um, build an internal marketplace within the NHS. They have allowed outside providers to come into the NHS. Some of these are on short term contracts, it's not worked out well um and we've seen because of that a fragmentation of the infrastructure of the service because they've broken the service up into tiny bits it's hard to manage there's a lot of wastage there's a lot of money that gets wasted and they've also over time diminished their own responsibility to patients and have put pa- uh, have put that responsibility on local healthcare leaders which means that during the 2010s as they have pulled the funding down They've pulled the funding down on a service that they had already fragmented and outsourced and the it wasn't as stable as it had been 40 years ago. And so what has happened is we've got this weak service. And when things fail, the government now are able to point the finger at someone locally and blame them because they have instigated these reforms over the years that have meant they don't have to hold responsibility for what happens in a local area. So. Privatisation is at the core of all of this. There was an observational study that came out in the Lancet a few months ago, looking at the private companies running healthcare, uh, NHS healthcare services in England, and it showed that there was a link between poor patient care and an increase in private companies running NHS services. Now, it's the first study of its kind. I mean, you need to look into this in more detail, but. It raised real alarm bells within the medical community um, because what the study suggests is that people are getting a worse delivery of service from private companies than they would have been, you know, if it had been run by public service. Um, There's a huge problem where people aren't really aware of what's going on because private healthcare companies running NHS services put the NHS logo on their buildings. And so people aren't even always aware when they're getting their healthcare delivered by a private provider. Um, and I find it incredibly worrying that Labour are putting out rhetoric in multiple media outlets, suggesting that we need to rely on the private healthcare industry to save the NHS. I mean, you just need to look at history. It has never saved the NHS in the past. And what's more, they—you know, during Covid, the government bought up lots of capacity in the private sector, supposedly because it was going to help out millions and hundreds of millions of pounds were wasted because that capacity simply wasn't used at the time. And finally, sorry, this has been a bit of a rant, um, (laughs) we don't have that much private healthcare capacity in the UK. Um, People have tried to establish how many private healthcare workers we actually have, and best estimates is that most of the people working in the private healthcare industry also have an NHS job. And so if you're paying the private healthcare industry to do stuff on behalf of the NHS, you're actually just poaching staff and moving them into the private healthcare industry to fulfil operations, et cetera. And meanwhile, the NHS is going to struggle even more. So it doesn't seem to be a logical decision of Labour's to do this, right? My feeling, and the feeling I think of quite a lot of people, is that we want the NHS to be publicly funded, publicly run in the way that it was originally intended to do so. Shouldn't be like this. So
2: it's, it's not even. I suppose obviously it is funding. It needs a lot of funding. But it's it's yeah. we need a whole. We need people in charge who actually want it to survive and want it to be a national health service. It requires a, a rethinking in terms of. I say a rethinking. Perhaps sort of back to original thinking from from our politicians.
1: Absolutely, and it is going to require an awful lot of investment. I mean, the, the Conservatives over the last twelve or thirteen years have absolutely destroyed the service. I mean, you you just need looking at one tiny part of the problem they haven't tackled building repairs we've got a situation now where in England alone there are 9 billion pounds in unmet repairs in hospitals and other nhs workplaces and in some of those instances you've got situations where buildings are actually crumbling and it, a report has been written showing that patients and staff are at risk of uh, you know safety failings stuff like you know, the potential for there's, – there's water dripping through ceilings in clinical areas, this sort of stuff. They haven't even tackled that. So the amount of investment that would be needed just to get the service back to where it would have been, you know, 15 years ago would be enormous. um And in my mind, what they need to do as well is bring those contracts all back into public delivery again, and that's a huge job that would cost a lot of money. But the idea that it can't be done is an absolute nonsense because – the NHS was built by people. The NHS is, you know, extremely important to people. If you look at the polling consistently, it shows that the public wants it. Um, and I think the thing that makes me the most cross about this whole situation is that the public have not voted for what has happened to the NHS. When the public are asked, they want it to be a publicly run service, publicly funded there's never ever been a public consultation saying, Do you want private healthcare involved? Do you want things to be outsourced? Do you think we should be buying up hundreds of millions of pounds a month in private healthcare capacity? I suspect if they did, people would say, No, you know, we want that yeah. money to go into funding the NHS, please.
2: Yeah. It's, uh, it's never it's never been popular it's, you know everyone wants their health service working and and loves it and you know we saw that even as obviously it, it ended up being quite patronizing but seeing pe- how many people clapped um <laughs> health workers and, and the support for it is immense it never it always baffles me that politicians don't support it in well, the way that people do and
1: horribly they use it as a vote winner don't they and then they'll go hmm manifesto promises i mean i don't want to bang on about this too much because clearly the current conservative government have absolutely destroyed the service but if you look at what keir starmer promised he he got voted in as the leader of the Labour Party. One of his pledges was that he said he was going to, you know, end outsourcing within the NHS. And he's quietly removed that pledge now, you know, about six months ago. And a lot of Labour members that I talked to were very upset about that because they said, well, the reason I I gave him my vote because I thought he was going to, you know, sort the NHS out. And now he's got his health, you know, his prospective health secretary going out on the news and telling everybody that private healthcare is the way to go. It's it's
2: appalling really yeah it's it's really appalling it makes me very very upset and very disappointed um and and i mean I, I suppose you know that brings me to the next question really which is uh you know what what can we what can we do um you know and, and uh, as as listeners apart from sort of trying not to get ill or maybe i suppose now we have to wear hard hats if we go to knee. but you know what what can we do to actually help this campaign because uh, uh, you know it sounds always but there's very little faith in the people that we vote for right now, uh, particularly the main two parties in, in being able to help this. So what can we do as people to ensure the safety of the NHS, to support all the staff? Um, and I wondered also if you can tell us a bit about every doctor uh, at the same time. And yeah,
1: sure. So, OK, so broad things that I think people should be doing at the moment for the NHS is um, keep in your mind that the majority of the mainstream media in the UK is privately owned. And that privatisation is very rarely mentioned uh, in terms of the NHS, because if you think about it, there's a lot of reasons why some of these private um, newspaper owners wouldn't want that to be discussed. So keep that in your mind when people are blaming, you know, stuff's going wrong in the NHS, who's to blame? And they're casting blame on the staff, for example, keep in your mind that, you know, Privatisation hasn't been mentioned here. It's a massive contributing factor to all the problems. Um, and I think we all need to get a bit more kind of savvy at questioning the way that the NHS is spoken about in the media. Um, we are a campaigning organization. We set up as a group of doctors, we're a collective of doctors, and we campaign on lots of different things. It's about 1200 of us at the moment, but growing all the time, which is great. But amazingly when we started talking on twitter and joining up with other people um we found that there's an absolutely enormous group of people who also feel strongly about the nhs and we now have over a thousand members who are members of the public so if you'd like to join every doctor and join our campaigning we would absolutely love it you can find us at www.everydoctor.org.uk And at the moment, um, we've been running a campaign called Revive the NHS for a couple of months, and we've done three emergency MP meetings for that so far. Um, We've just stepped up the campaign because the government simply are not Tackling this crisis with the urgency it requires, and so we've set up a petition where we're calling upon leaders across the UK to declare humanitarian crisis and to treat the situation as such. So um, it would be amazing if you could share the link with your listeners, but if you could add your name to that and share it with other people, that would be fantastic. Um, Unfortunately, healthcare is extremely political, and what we have now is a war on words. which is horrible, but for as long as this government is able to just describe this situation as an unprecedented crisis blaming on COVID and flu, they're not going to be tackling this properly. We need to talk about this in the strongest terms. They are demonstrating right now that they do not value the lives of the patients who are dying in their hundreds every week as a result of this situation. And so that is why we are stepping up the way we talk about it because we're trying to force them into declaring a crisis and responding to it. So anything that anyone could do to, um, you know, sign the petition and share it with others, that would be really fantastic. That's brilliant
2: advice. Thank you, Neil. I'll make sure all the links are in the podcast blurb uh, so listeners can get on that uh, immediately. Um, and well, thank you. Thank you, Julie, for having time this week. I know you've had a busy week with the emergency MP meeting as well. As well. Um, and I just wanted last question, which is what I ask every guest on the show with just the hope of furthering good information, good resources, um, which is that apart from yourself and every doctor, of course, um, are there any other organisations, writers, sites, campaigns um, that listeners should check out for accurate info on what is happening to the NHS at the moment? Um, who are the people that you go to and that you would recommend?
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, there's two other campaigns who we work with quite closely who are doing a fantastic job. One of them is called Your NHS Needs You. So that's www.yournhsneedsyou.com. And they are against prioritisation, same as us. Um, And they have lots of celebrities who've come on board the campaign as well, which is fantastic. They've made some videos and things. Um, there's some great information on their website. And the other organisation who we're working with quite closely is NHS Workers Say No. And they're a massive group of healthcare workers who are um, supporting the workers at the moment, quite honestly. They're frontline workers themselves. So if you look them up, uh, follow them on Twitter, try and support what they're doing. Um, and I guess just a final thing, um, I'd just like to say support for all workers who are striking at the moment. This isn't a problem that's just helping in your health. Uh, a lot of people aren't being paid properly. Um, and we need to back them, support them through all of this difficulty.
2: Thanks so much to Julia for somehow fitting in that recording amongst all the many, many brilliant things she's doing for NHS staff. You can find her on Twitter at JU Julia Grace, JU Julia Grace, and every doctor can be found and supported at everydoctor.org.uk. On that site, you'll find links to their socials, ways to buy NHS staff coffee and more, and most importantly, right now, the petition that very, very much needs even more signatures. What do you need to hear about right now? The world of politics is depressingly repetitive, so I am very keen to hear if you want deeper dives into current issues or something else entirely as respite from hearing that Rishi Sunak is unable to yet again understand how humans work. Let me know and you can do such things by dropping me a line on any of the socials or at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And that's your lot for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. You know the score. Yes, that's right. It's 1-0 to everyone but me. Sorry, I mean, if you like this rant jazz, then do recommend to others who might also need a weekly dose of comedy despairing. Donate to the Kofi if you can or join the Patreon and give us a dandy review at Apple Podcasts or similar podcast outlet services. Cheers lots to ACAST, my brother, Last Skeptic, and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when Keir Starmer announces Labour's bold new policy promise of whatever Rishi Sunak says, but repeating a whole octave lower so you think it's something else entirely. Bye. This week's show was sponsored by the conservative all-new maths guidance, featuring such high-end questions as if Nadim Zahawi avoided an unknown large sum of tax but only paid 3 million of it to HMRC once found out, how long should his jail sentence that he won't get actually be? And such long, complicated equations as if there's money for tanks to Ukraine, shredding 4,000 necessary laws and for Rishi Sunak to fly a private jet to Leeds, how much of a pay rise won't nurses get? helping young people realise important mathematical lessons to help them understand the everyday of politics. Two wrongs maker? That's right, frontbench cabinet minister.
0: Hold up.